Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Adam Klickfeld's weekly Rashi study class. We are um, on chapter six of the book of Exodus of, of, of Parshat Va'era, hanging out uh, around verses seven, eight, nine, really seven and eight, um, in those verses that we know from the Haggadah about the languages of redemption. We spoke about that last week and probably the time before that, how it's hard to really understand how the number four iconically jumped off of these verses, particularly because there are more than four active verbs that God is doing, and it's probably an ex post facto um, mapping of uh, a number that was already significant in the Pesach culture back onto these verses. Um, and uh, depending on how quickly we go today, which is haha, because we never go quickly, we might get to one of the strangest Rashi's in the Torah not in terms of like the content, but, but the, the methodology, right? Um, it's, you'll, you'll know, you'll, you've all studied enough Rashi's that you'll know right away that this, that what, as soon as we jump into it on verse nine, uh, the third Rashi on verse nine, it will be sui generis. We'll see, how, let's see if we get there. We're not rushing to get there. Once, if we get there, we certainly won't finish it because it's also one of the longest comments of Rashi in the Torah. Okay, but um, let's, uh, Let's read verse uh, seven because it's the it's it's verse eight that we're really going to focus on. So to get us going, verse seven: "Velakachti erchem lilaam, I will take you to be me as take you to me as a people. Vahayiti lachem lelohim, I will be to you as God or as a God or as a Lord. Vidatem, and you will know ki ani Adonai lelohem. Once again, invoking the Yud Hey I am Adonai your God. Which which God? I'm Adonai." We spoke about this. Is this a, a present tense word the way we think of it in English, or is this uh, a, um, an adjectival verb? The, the taker out of you. Terrible English, but you know what I mean. The one who takes you out. From underneath the burdens of Egypt. And we discussed how Rashi is trying to make it even more clear than it obviously is that the burdens of Egypt are the burdens that Egypt has imposed upon you as opposed to other possible syntactical way of understanding. It wouldn't make sense in content, but in syntax, which is Egypt's burdens, like the, the, the burdens that Egypt is experiencing. Okay, that was verse seven. We did the Rashi's on verse seven, and I think we're about to get to verse eight. I don't remember if we read it, but I know we didn't do the Rashi, so we'll read it again. Uh, let's start. Larry, do you have enough voice to read verse eight? Probably not. Sorry. Okay. Uh, Alan, you want to read verse eight? Okay. Verse eight. Veheveti etchem el haaretz asher nasati et yadai et yadi latet ota la Avraham yitzchak liyakov benatati ota lachem morasha ani Adonai. Good. Two very picayune pronunciation um, edits that I only give to you because I know you'll appreciate them because the, the, the syllable that is stressed is important, particularly in biblical text. It's not veheveti as it would be in modern Hebrew, but veheveti. Right? That's what the trip is. Veheveti etchem. It's venatati otalachem or has to do with has to do with what happens 
to uh, which syllables are stressed on Avavaypuch. But now you can translate. All right, just a question about Venatati, because it looks like there's the the emphasis, the the metag or something, Venatati, after the nun there. The main emphasis is where the trup is, Venatati. The metag, that little vertical line next to the kamas, the nun, says you have like a, a, a half emphasis or a quarter emphasis if you really wanted to be precise. So if, 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 if you really wanted to, to give um, sound to that when you were laning, it would be like, the Abraham tati But that's really, really uh, a, a deep dive. The, where, where the trup is, is where the main syllable emphasis is. Rick, you have a comment on that? Um, no, only to say, look at the word in front of it. Ooh, Yaakov, you got one under the ooh, you got one under the yud. So, um, yeah, obviously, you're absolutely right, Rabbi. There's there's short uh, vowels, there's half long vowels. You, yeah, lot, yeah. So they're they're all over the place, but the trope is the is the main stress point. The met the metegs are interesting in in real like. Um, Alice in the Wonderland, down the rabbit hole, um, grammatical uh, surgery on each word. But in terms of pronunciation, uh, follow the trup, not the metag. Okay, okay. good to know. I've learned something new already, which is always a good thing. Okay. Uh, and I will bring you to the land that I, uh, that I uh, promised or swore uh, to give to you uh, to, to give you to to Avraham, to, to Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, and I will give you uh, an inheritance. I will give you food for your inheritance. I am Adonai. Good. So I want to um, interrogate your decision, an interesting decision, to translate Asher Nasati at Yadi collo- like, as a colloquialism or as a as an idiom as opposed to the words. What do the words mean, Asher Nasati at Yadi? That Nasati, that that I carried my hand, that my hand, that my hand Nasati. um... Hard to make sense of, right? Nasati can mean carry, lift, bear, right? Yeah. Translate the sentence, literally, you'd be in a bit of a, uh, like a trouble, right? I, I, that my I hand carried. That I raised my hand to give to you. It is, is God in, in like fourth grade that God had to, has to raise God's hand. So ah. look, look at the uncleus for a second, because you might have been like Baruch Shekivanta. You kind of translated the phrase the way uncleus uh, renders it. Uncleus here is, is, very, is very not literal, right? So if you go back to the beginning of the uncleus translation, va'a'il, I. Um, I, I will lift you up, or I will enter you. Uh, actually, more enter than lift you up. I will enter Yadchun, you, La'arat, Lan, D, that, Kiamit, the memory that I establish with my word, which is a version of saying promise, Lemitanyata, to give it, Labraham, Yaakov. So, Uncleus knows that there is an Aramaic word for Nasati and an Aramaic word for Yadi, but he doesn't go there. He translates that I lifted up my hand to mean that I established with my word. So uh, other people on Zoom around the table, what do we think is going on here? Why do those words mean what those, what, 
what other possible ways of translating the verse, and why do we think those um, words might mean what Uncle Lewis is translating them as? And by the way, um, well, we'll we'll read Ever Fox later because Ever Fox kind of steals some of Rashi's thunder. Rick, and then Joanna. Hi. So um, over the weekend, I just saw some uh, uh, videos on Egypt and and the gods. They raise their hands to uh, swear things and. Um, it's it's a sign of peace and all that, but um, it, it, it's the motion of swearing, you know. So so if even to this day, right, to lift lift your hand in a court in a court is a is a sign of swearing. So you're saying therefore the the Torah adam that God the Torah speaks the language of human beings, and even though God doesn't have a hand and God doesn't have to do anything other than to be God and to swear, God says. This is the land that I promised by doing the thing that humans do when they promise doing this to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay, possibility. Joanna, Renee, then Barry, and then Stevie, and then Joel. And we're definitely not going to get to that long Rashi today. Go ahead, Joanna. For a God that we say has all that, you know, doesn't have corporal form, and we spend so much time talking about that, we use a lot of human imagery to talk about God. And it seems to me when we do that, we're trying to express some incredible sort of end of the spectrum, right? And it's particularly poignant here because we're coming upon a metaphor that we're all gonna see over and over again. And we all know intuitively not to translate it literally every time we see biyad chazakau vizro and etuya. And um, I'm also thinking like about the expression vayichar af, um, you know, in terms of, you know, talking about God's nose when God is angry. So it seems to me there, there was something powerful and poetic um, about using body parts, even though we don't really talk about God corporally, in order to convey sort of the intensity of what is happening. Great, Joanna. Vayichar Af is a great example because you never see Vayichar Af to explain that God's nostrils were inflamed. It is translated as, and God was angry. So we jump over the idiom or jump to the idiom without paying attention to the words, which is what Uncleus does here. We'll see Rashi and then Everett Fox. There's there's a way to fuse them. But Uncleus doesn't even bother with the 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 body imagery to go straight to what Angus thinks the meaning of the phrase would be. Very good, Renee. Um, I was going to say something similar to what you brought up that it 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 reminded me of an oath in court when you raise your hand. Um, and also, it's really interesting in my translation when it refers to the hand, it it capitalizes the word my. So I don't know if it did that for any particular reason, but it kind of emphasized. The oath, to me, it, it just seemed like it was emphasizing the oath part. Yes, yeah, sometimes translations will give a capital letter to a pronoun that refers to God, right? Whether it's a, a you know an individual pronoun or a possessive pronoun, right? If God, if you know, in translations that render God a he or a him, sometimes that H will have a capital letter. Uh, it's it's like trying to use the conventions of the English language, which the Torah could not have anticipated and didn't know, to add some divine gravitas to what is just a mundane pronoun. Um, and Everett Fox also refers to it as an oath, more specifically. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. We're going to go we'll do the Everett Fox after the Rashi. <laughs> okay. All right. Barry. 
Uh, do we know what this is referring to, the right hand or the left hand? Uh, if, if, if I'm assuming it's the right hand. In Zohar and in Kabbalah, the right side is the Itzhak, the judgment. I can't hear him too well, Barry. Is that better? Can you hear me now? Hello? He's shaking his head, yeah. Yeah. Yes, that's better. I can't see you shaking your head. Um, so uh, in, in Kabbalah Zohar, the, the right side is Yitzhak, judgment, power, uh, and I believe it's the right hand of God that, that came through uh, Egypt uh, to do what had to be done. And, and uh, so the, the, the raising of the hand here is, is, the, is the symbol of God's power uh, and, and, um, to come about. Okay, Stevie? Yeah, the, what jumps out for me is uh, what we're going to lane in a couple of weeks is uh, right? that when Abraham has his servant uh, swear to him, he says, you know, take your hand and where we get the Latin root testify. Um, but uh, that, you know. Do you want to spell that out or not? Take your hand and place it under my leg or, or something like that. Um, but uh, it's this. This was a custom for for oathing things, and that's where the Latin root testify comes from. Yeah. Um, Good. Right. So, but, but that a hand is used in that process. Yeah. Um, and that's just what I assumed this meant. Right. So a hand is used um, sometimes with a, with other human body parts to make an oath, and and so, this is also now a reference not to placing the hand under something, but actually some kind of a raising, right? Um, okay. Um, yeah, Sue, give Sue the mic. We're obviously they haven't left Mitzrayim yet, but we are going to get to Yad Chazakah Vezaronatuya, and it it makes me think that we, it a lot of a lot of what we talk about having to do with the land have, has to do with the hands. Um, that's all. Yeah, similar to what Joanna said, that we're going to be we're going to be confronting that imagery all the time. And again, we talk about this so frequently in this class, which is wonderful. What is language? Language is an articulation of syllables that's supposed to put a certain picture in our in our mind, right? Um, so when we say biad in Hebrew, for those of us who know Hebrew, or that God took us out with a mighty hand and outstretched arm. An interesting question is, what do you see when you hear those words in your head? What do you think? Are you, are, you, are you thinking Popeye? Or are you already doing the jump to, to representing in your mind the power that that metaphor, that, that, that anthropomorphic metaphor is making us um, think about, right? It's an interesting question in general. I once heard a, a comic, um, I hope I don't regret saying what I'm about to say, talking about how silly it is that in, in it's, it's a wonderful thing that the N-word is not recited in, uh, is, not, is not used in common speech, right? It's a terrible word. But he says he, what he hates more than the word that begins letter N has five letters is the phrase the N-word. Because, because you get away with saying the N-word without saying it, and then you make me think that word. Like that... That's what happens when I, when you say the words, the N word, you're making me think of the word you don't want to say out loud. That's what language is, right? So why that's any, any much better than saying it, he's not, he's not quite sure. Uh, so here, just, yeah. Uh, can I just add that if 
but if that is the image of uh, then the vow is sort of more directed to the recipient of the vow than simply a like blanket statement. Yeah, right, right. Um, so let's hear from Diane and Larry, and then we'll um, go into the Rashi on the verse. This is a shameless plug for this week's Haftorah Plethora. So Rick and I were discussing it. And of course, this vow is referring to the Brit Ben Betarim, which is where God is promising Abraham that he is, his offspring will inherit the land. And of course, in that passage was chapter 15 of Lech Lecha, he doesn't raise his hand at all. There's no reference to his making the vow by raising his hand. The, the Brit is, is, is done over the, uh, I guess, the parts of various animals that Abraham is, 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 is sacrificing. It's the Jewish laser from the sky. <laughs> right. And Rick, Rick, and Rick and I, uh, well, I struggled, Rick doesn't struggle, to see the connection between the Haftarah, which only mentions Abraham once, uh, and, the, and the Parsha. So we kind of discussed this issue as well. Thanks, Larry. Ilan and then Sue. Let's get Ilan a microphone. Ilan, this one seems to be better. But there you go. Yeah, just a, a question not related to the I have raised my hand, but to the last phrase, which is on the other night. Why then why the need to repeat that for the third time in three sentences? Did he think that it was possibly his brother-in-law speaking instead? <laughs> What's the uh, why the repetition there must be some reason because it wouldn't it would be wasteful otherwise. Yeah. Um, when we get to the book of Leviticus, which is a long time away, um, there are there are series of laws given that that all seem to end. And the same question, like it's, it can't be to tell us who's speaking, as if there's a there's a chance that we might not have known who is speaking, right? And of course, there's no one answer to the question why Anianani comes. Um, in this scene, you know, it's it's already a not that many not long ago in verses. There's been a whole whoops, someone is you know, there's been a whole conversation about how God is now in a situation of finally fulfilling a promise that God made to the ancestors, and it's the fulfilling of promises aspect of the divinity that is most yud hey vav ish, right now. That's a midrash that doesn't that doesn't jump off the page. But Rashi worked hard to get us to believe that that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, yeah, they 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 knew my name was Yudhevavhe, but they never really got to experience my full Yudhevavheness because I never fulfilled the most significant promise I was going to make to them, which is this one. So Rashi would say, even though he doesn't say it on this verse, he said it before. Maybe the Ani Hashem is once again God saying, "You can trust me." And, and you can, and the dead ancestors can retroactively trust me. I am indeed Adonai, not just Elohim. That's one. Right. 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 I correct that. That is that is correct. Sue and then Barry. Well, this is a little weird, but um, I'm I'm just sitting here thinking what you know that the land. You know, what if we married? The land is the hand of God. I mean, wh why why is it um, so important for the Israelites to return there and for you know all of eternity for the Jews to be settled in Israel? And if we're not going to anthropomorphize God, then perhaps what we need to do is do is dwell in the hand of God. Hmm. Um, You're saying so. 
So, so the it. read this not metaphorically, read it as linking the land of Israel to the hand of God itself. Right. Yeah. I lifted it up where the it is the, the land, huh. not the hand. Good, interesting midrash. Yeah. Barry? Piggyback on that before oh. you go on. Yeah. What you talked about at the Baruch Ling thing, that et could also mean im. Right. I lifted it with my hand. I lifted it at yadi with my hand. Very nice. Barry? Uh, I, I get the sense of the Ani uh, Hashem so frequent. It's, it's like a, a verbal seal, sealing the document. Every time God's making some, some statement, it's being sealed. Yeah, yeah so a certain kind of coda. Uh, I see Joanna's hand, and then we'll look and start looking at the Rashi. So talking about sealing the document, I want to say it's perhaps the language of, like again, speaking metaphorically, sealing the ketubah. Hmm. If you look at verse 7, we often elide over the vahayiti, I think because the rabbis have you know, so planted in our heads, what are the four verbs of redemption in these verses? Right. But is very interesting because that's the language of marriage in Breshit. Someone took someone and then that person was a wife to Isaac in the case of Isaac or whoever. Now Nasati also becomes a very interesting word because of Nisuin. And... Um, the other word I want to jump to is morasha, because we heard morasha translated as inheritance, which I think maybe perhaps is better expressed by uh, uh, from the same cognate, Yerusha. So if Yerusha is inheritance, what is morasha? And I want to say a heritage, and what's the difference? And inheritance, I don't have to work for. Someone gives me a present, voila, I have it. A morasha, a heritage, I have to claim it. And so now there's, you know, we've heard a lot about what God is doing here, but there's some language here of like, you're going to have what to do also. This is a partnership. This is a marriage. And you have to claim, after all is said and done, you have to claim your inheritance. You have to work to keep, uh, not your inheritance. You have to claim your heritage. You have to work to keep that. Um and then I think now also the Ani Adonai has become very interesting because the second one is after Velakachti Vehayiti, and the third one is after Morasha. So God is asserting the partnership. I am God, and you are the other half of the partnership. Very nice, Joanna. Particularly the first thing you said, your, um, your sensitivity to um, how, wor how vocab words and particularly verbs are are grouped in one setting and how they might link to another like topic within Jewish thought is really wonderful. Cause I, I had, I, I could have read those, read those verses a hundred times and never would have lassoed them together as you have. I want to just emphasize what Joanna said, because now that I see it, I can't unsee it, that the verbs of, of verse seven and eight, which begin with the last of the four, like the rabbis lassoed the three verbs on in verse six, and the fourth ver and the and the and the first verb of verse seven to be the four verbs of the redemption. But if you lasso together the the first verb of verse seven lakhti, the second verb of verse seven vayiti, and then the um, the uh, the verb in the middle of verse eight vinasati, a, a different like the bullseye is now in the center of a, the arrow is in the center of a different bullseye, and those are all marriage 
verbs, absolutely, right? Kikach ish isha is from the verb lakach, to take. Um, um, to, to, to be uh, espoused to someone is always expressed in the verb to be, and then nasati nisuin. So that's really a lovely trio. I never, I never picked up on that, particularly as God is thinking ahead to the Sinai moment, which is not mentioned here explicitly, but is, um, it's alluded to, which we think of certainly midrashically as a wedding. Very nice. Um, Rebecca Leonard, and then I promise we'll get to the Rashi. <clears throat> Hi. Um, so uh, Nechama Leibowitz has a different take on this here. Okay. Um, looking at verses two through eight, this is one giant chiasma. And, uh, you know, beginning and ending with I am the Lord. And just to, uh, and there's like four parts in here that get repeated, you know, start at the beginning and then repeated in reverse order at the end. The chiasma is a dominant feature of the whole passage, which opens and closes with the frame with the refrain, I am the Lord. Second comes a reference to the patriarchs who were the first to experience the divine revelation. Accordingly, they referred to again in the last phrase, but one. Similarly, the th similarly, third comes the promised land, mentioned again before the reference to the patriarchs. Fourth comes the bondage and likewise the fourth from the end, the theme is repeated. The divine peroration falls naturally into two sections, the address to Moses and the message he is to bring the people. And uh, the latter is divided into two subsections referring respectively to the Exodus and the entry to the promised land. So again, if you look at this in a chiastic structure, I can't really show it too well here at the moment, but you can see how it was, you know, diagrammed over here that this is one giant poem, you know, that uh, with a very distinct structure. Hmm. Thank you. Thank you for that, Leonard. Um, okay. Uh, any other questions, comments? Let's go to Rashi, and then we're going to read uh, Ibn Ezra, which I'll pull up on the screen because y'all don't have it. <clears throat> and then we will look at Ibra Fox. So back to you, Sue. Sue needs a microphone, right? Now, who is reading? Sue is reading? Who is I am. Alan. Oh, Alan. <coughs> yeah. Okay. Vinasati et yadi, Havimotiha, Laha Shava, Bechisa, Bechisi, Slicha, Bechisi, that uh, I will raise, uh, I will raise it to, to swear uh, on my chair on my throne. Past tense, Harimoti Ota. Oh, I, uh, I raised it to swear on my throne. Okay, so Rashi does several things in three words. <clears throat> he translates nasati as harimotiha, which is his way of saying nasa can mean many different things. What it means here is lift. And then he <clears throat> turns the et yadi, my hand, um, uh, into just the unspoken direct object of harimotiha, and then gives us this language of oath, right? I, I lifted up my anthropomorphic hand, upon my throne. What does that last word do in this comment? Like, if we didn't have it, we would understand that Rashi's saying, ah, it's an idiom, it means to swear, we get the point. Like, 
and, and we do have a notion of God's throne, but how, what is this phrase, Bikisi, uh, that upon or to my chair, what does it add to this, our understanding of this verse? And what might it be an allusion to? Anyone want to? The, the, the only thing, my, my only guess about this is it's talking about God's power, God's kingship, and his, his ability to be able to uphold his promise to be able to bring the people, you know, out from Egypt in that sense. It adds, a, it adds more of a royalty and power component to it. So what, what's the anthropomorphic image? Even if we're not supposed to think anthropomorphically, what are we supposed to, before we jump out of the anthropomorphism, what are we supposed to be imagining God doing? God down here, lifting God's hand up to the throne. We're supposed to imagine God on God's throne, lifting God's hand. What are you, how do you see that, uh, uh, Alan? What you just I said? would see it as God being on God's throne in the anthropomorphic sense and and raising his hand to be able to do everything from above. Aha, uh -huh. so Bikisi is God saying, I, sitting upon my throne up there, while I was also talking to Abraham down here, Harimotia, I lifted my hand. I, 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 I was up there on my throne, Avram was down there, I was talking to Abraham, but you didn't see it, folks, but I did this, and so I said I promise. That's, that's the image, Alan? Yes. Interesting, okay, good. Joanna and then Rebecca Leonard. So I think by using this language, one, it's setting up a contrast to Paro. <clears throat> All of a sudden, we're comparing Paro on his throne mm. to God on his throne. And the other thing is, the moment you have me thinking about the word throne and you use the word hand, I now start to think about what's in your hand, the scepter. Mm. And now I'm in Migilata Ser, and you know what happens when Ahasuerus extends his hand on his scepter or doesn't, and you, you know there's some power, you know, a sense of like this is a shorthand way of saying like um, Bnei Israel has found favor in God's eyes. That nice, nice. I want to share with you. Um, I think I do this technologically. I'm going to put it on here. And then share screen so everyone can see it. Okay, so um, some of the super commentaries on Rashi make the point that God is not just referring in general, sorry, Rashi is not just referring in general to Kisei Hashem, but to this particular verse, which is the uh, opening line of, I forgot which Haftarah, uh, something over the summer. Ko Amar Adonai Hashemaim Kisi, this is the last chapter of the book of Isaiah, by the way. Um, Thus says God, Hashemayim kisi, the heavens are my throne, the ha'aretz hadom raglai, but my feet come all the way down to the, to the ground, that's my footstool. Eze vayat asher tivnuli, eze nuhati, where could you, you know, since I span from up there to down here, how are you going to build a home for me, right? So the notion is that in Isaiah says in God's name that Yes, I dwell down there. That's when I speak to you. That's when I'm involved in human activities. But my throne really is a supernal heavenly throne. And, 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 and there is a verticality to it, right? So uh, the super commentaries are saying that Rashi is saying that this verse is connected to a later Isaiah verse, that when God goes like this, God is kind of both either 
pointing us up towards there or God wants us to imagine that it's up there that things that matter in, in God's realm are actually happening. So I was on my throne, I lifted my hand, it was a promise, I'm good for it. Rosemary, you wanna give Mosiri the microphone? Yeah, right. Um, I'm kind of more thinking of nowadays um, when you're going to uh, take a loan from the bank, you put your house in and God in a way is showing, I lift my hand, that's sure, but I have a throne also. Yeah. So that's guaranteed for me. Good, like the, the, uh, the guarantee, correct, the collateral. Okay, now that we've read Rashi on this, I wanna to read to you Everett Fox, who, as we know, is our, is, is our, our, our most literal of translators that we normally have around the table. And that makes it very hard in this verse. I will bring you into the land, right? So that's pretty plain. I'll bring you to the land. He adds in the following word in parentheses, over, and parentheses, which I lifted my hand, right? It's the land regarding which I lifted my hand. And he puts in another parentheses, in an oath, to give to Abraham, to Yitzchak, and to Yaakov. I will give it to you as a possession, going back to um uh joanna not joanna but she's gone joanna joanna joanna's comment that it's a the difference in morashan yurusha i yud vave right so he as a literal translator keeps in the phrase my hand um but he adds in words and parentheses which he does not do very often he tries very hard to just render it into an english using each word but he feels like he has to add in the inner oath so that you don't actually just think it's a it, it, it's a physical raising of hand that doesn't symbolize something something beyond that. Um, you just see there's a chat comment here. Oh yes, yeah, Shabbat Rosh Chodesh, correct, thank you. So when I said over the summer, the answer is sometimes. <laughs> uh, great, uh, I guess I, I forgot that Joanna has to leave early um, sometimes. So uh, Joanna, we miss you. Uh, anything else on verse eight? All right, let's go to. Sorry, can I can I can I make a comment? Yeah, I couldn't couldn't get to the raise hand. Once again, JPS. Um, I have a criticism of JPS. It makes a liar out of God. Hmm. So the JPS translation is: I will bring you in into the land which I swore. And Alter's translation is. I will hold on. Sorry, I will bring you to the land, and Ezra, and and Kaplan's uh, translation is also to the land, because God did not bring Moses and that generation into the land. He only brought brought them to the edge of the land, and not into the land. Well, the people were brought in, just not Moshe. And this is now we're in a <coughs> quotation mark <coughs> what God is telling Moshe to say to the people. Right, but my understanding was that the, wasn't that generation died out in the desert. Right, so it's 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 an it could be read as an etchem. You, whatever representatives of this people, will still be alive when I finally bring you in. Yeah, right. How does Kaplan read uh, do the nasati yadi? Oh, he does the same way Alter does, which is as, as the as the uh, the the idiom. Um, he says. Um, I will bring you to the land regarding which I raised my hand. Regarding which, yeah. And then brackets swearing, 
And then, and, and Alter does the same thing. Similar to Everett Fox, yeah. Right, and Alter does exactly the same thing. He says, I will bring you to the land that I raised my hand in pledge. Uh -huh. And then both of them comment in their comments below that it's an idiom. Yeah. Um, I actually wanted to read Ibn Ezra. I think I pulled it up. Yeah. Um, let me share that screen. I don't have it on, uh, in front of you. So this is Ibn Ezra, on um, who's who's a real who's a real daktakan. He's very precise with his language and his grammar, on the phrase vitam and the reason, the understanding of asher nasati yadi, which I lifted up my hand. Derech mashal. This is a metaphor. <laughs> Ibn Ezra says, ki adam like a human sheyisayado el hashemayim v'yishava, like a person who will raise his hand upwards to the heavens if there isn't a thigh around to put it under, and swear, kamoki esa el shamayim yadi, like uh, he quotes from Deuteronomy thirty-two that I. Um, um, for I lift up my hand to the heaven, and a verse from the book of Daniel. Daniel. So Ibn Ezra has no problem just saying quite plainly, it's just a metaphor. Sometimes a metaphor is, is, is staring us plainly in the face, and we don't have to work so hard to imagine a, a divine hand. And elsewhere, super commentaries on Rashi, which would say the same thing about Ibn, Ibn Ezra, but there are far fewer super commentaries on Ibn Ezra than Rashi is. Again, Torah is using language that we would understand. We understand raising hand means an oath. Doesn't mean that God has a hand. Okay, um, let's go to verse nine. Uh, Joel, you want to read verse nine? Me? Yeah. Okay, translate. And Moses said this or thus. Because all because the previous verses were all in God saying to Moses, say this to the Israelites, right? So we we end the double quotation mark because we end what God wanted Moshe to say, and we end God's speech that God has been saying for several verses. So now it's back to an action item, right? To the children of Israel, but they did not hear uh, Moshe um, from impatience or uh, frustration um, and from hard work. Good. So on the heels of a verse where words about God's body we read idiomatically, there could be an instinct to read the, the phrases in this verse also idiomatically, right? Because you went um, to impatience. How else did you translate code Sarah? Frustration. Frustration. What does it literally mean? Um, shortness of breath. Yeah, shortness of breath or spirit, right? So it, it does make us wonder, what, 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 what are those words trying to convey in terms of what the Israelites' experience were, such that they were not able to shomea, and let's also remember, because we're going to have to linger on this, what are the several, what are the different possibilities that even the word shomea can mean in this verse? Shomea can mean hear or listen, hear or listen, or even like more intensive, obey, right? Right. So it, it's is it he, the the letter shin mem ayin can refer to something auditory, or some kind of a commitment that you make based on what you hear, right? So we're not sure which is the shamu they've got, that. that is, is, uh, is being referred to here, nor are we fully certain, just in these words, if we're supposed to understand Kotzer Ruach 
as some kind of physiological shortness of spirit or some um, a breath or something more emotional. Um, but we also have the, um, the hard work that they were experiencing as well. Um, this verse would even be more interesting if the ooh in between Kotzer Ruach and Avod Me'avodah Kasha were not there because there's a temptation to read it as they did not hear or heed Moshe because of the Kotzer Ruach. Why do they have Kotzer Ruach? Whatever it means, Me'avodah Kasha. But the ooh suggests that there were two things, both the Kotzer Ruach and the Avodah Kasha made it hard for them. Just look at Unculus quickly. Unculus uh, adds in a couple of words that they're not, they're not changing the meaning so much, but it's an interesting choice. So, umelel Moshe, umelel is uh, diber, like you know the word mila, is from the same root that has melel, a word. Moses, umelel Moshe Kain, livnei Israel, the lo kabilu min Moshe. So, which version of Shema is Uncle is translating of this as? Hearken or obey, right? Uncle is saying this is not listening because he doesn't translate it into the Aramaic. There's an Aramaic word that means listen. He's not saying that. Lo kabilu misho, they did not accept it from Moshe. Mimaik rucha, from some kind of like a bitterness of spirit. Umipalchana, and the work, the burdens, the havakasha alehun, that was hard upon them. So instead of just translating it as uh, a noun and an adjective, avodah kasha, he says, the noun, the avodah, which was hard upon them. Right? Interesting choice. Didn't he could have just done a straight translation, chooses not to. Okay, uh, thoughts or comments on the verse before we jump into the Rashis? Any possibilities for Kotzer Ruach? What does it bring up for you, Stevie? Just the last two verses, beginning with Lachain, don't, there's nothing required of the Bnei Israel, right? So the do not obey is an interesting, like, twist. It's sort of like they didn't, didn't like take it in, yeah. maybe, but there's not like there's nothing explicitly being asked of them aside from like have some hope because God is here, right? Like that's really interesting, Stevie. Right? We're not we're not in a mitzvah moment. We're just in a in a down information download moment, and so I, it's almost as if there's a stage of shmi'ah that's in between just listening and obeying, and it, it's in that realm of hearkening, paying attention to, heeding, like allowing it to sink in, right? Barry and then Larry Diane. Well, it's, it's two things. One is their their loss of uh, humanity, you know, living in, in, in Egypt. Uh, that's the distress, and, and then on top of that is the burdens of work. They 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 they've lost who they are as people. Yeah, and therefore it's it's maybe just be impossible to take in, right? The the words that they most want to take in, which is that their suffering may be over. That might be the hardest words for them to even to assimilate. Larry, Diane, did it get very cold in this room? Yes. Yeah. Like just no, not for you, Elon. Yeah. I feel like I'm rarely cold in the last five minutes. It's gotten icy in here. Uh, Larry, Diane, and then Stevie. So it's all from Nasaying at Yedchem. Go ahead. So it's from verse six that God is telling Moses to speak to the people. So it's the previous three verses um, where. Moses is giving what should be this rousing speech. So I envision it either seriously being um, maybe in the time of slavery, a, a, a preacher giving a, an exhortation to the people, uh, but as here, they're just too downtrodden to listen, 
or more facetiously, a football coach who's exhorting his, his team who's down 50 to nothing at halftime. And they're just too crushed to actually listen to what he's saying. But it's, but it's pretty realistic when people try to, to encourage people who are down and they're just, they're just not ready to listen to that message. I think we've, many of us have, have been there. Down, know what it's like. Downtrodden uh, is, is, a, is a good idiomatic um, rendering of Kotsir Ruach. And, and that comment was said by a true Lions fan. The, the, the fact that you gave that down 50 nothing at halftime example. Exactly. Uh, Stevie? Yeah, just that um, it's only after this Lo Shamuel Moshe that God actually says, go to Pharaoh, right? It's in the next verse or two verses. Um, so it, there could be some, you know, implication that like, if the, if Moser was received differently, then maybe everything that played out would have been different that like going to Pharaoh would not have been the next step. You could, who knows what it would have been, but. That's a fascinating possibility, Stevie. Everyone get what he's saying that if, if you cheat ahead, um, and looking at looking at verses 10 and 11, which, by the way, in the, are in the middle of a chapter in the Christian division of the text, but in the Torah's columns begin the next paragraph that pay after the end of verse nine show us that there's like a little bit of a break in the text. It's th that's when the instruction to go back to Pharaoh is brought in and Stevie is suggesting it's maybe that's an immediate reaction to the Israelites not having received or heeded this in this uh, this news. Um, I'm also interested by the last use of the root Shema. Now, sometimes if a, if a word can have several meanings, we don't have to pay too much attention as to what, why it means something here or something there. Sometimes it's just a pluripotent word. But the last Shema is verse five, right before God starts the speech to Moshe. And it's God's positive ability after time to have been Shamati at Nakat B'nai Israel, to have listened to the... Um, the cries of the children of Israel. That Shamati seems to be very much an anthropomorphic auditory. I, I, I heard them and, and it did sink in, it did penetrate. And now like God is finally hearing the Israelites and the next use of the word Shama is the Israelites, right? There's something so tragic about that. Like there is a moment at which it's too late to finally pay attention to someone's cry. Like they, they may no longer be able to hear you back, right? I, I hate to sermonize on it, but, the, but there's the, the contrast to that is really poignant. God is finally listening to what the Israelites have been saying for generations. And God says, okay, I'm gonna take you out. And they, and they, and, and they couldn't reciprocate the hearing because of whatever Kotzer Ruach means, right? Give Rosemary the microphone. Uh, the sentence finishes with um, a cruel bondage. So uh, it's, it shows sometimes, I mean, even the parents are so tired, they don't hear anymore. Yes. So. Uh, Rick, and then we'll look at some translations of the verse, and then we'll jump into Rashi. I'm probably doing the very long Rashi next week. Just to underline what you said, um, God says, okay. So in verse nine there, what does Moses actually say to the people? All he says is Cain. So um, I, don't, I don't know how we explained it that they didn't hear, but obviously what he said didn't work, but it looks like he didn't say much. Uh -huh. 
meaning <laughs> that, that you're reading it as saying, and Moshe said the word yes, as opposed to, you know, thusly. Yeah, interesting. Um, Everett Fox on verse nine, how he deals with Kotzer Ruach. Moshe spoke thus to the children of Israel, because Everett Fox disagrees with Rick Muller, but they did not hearken to Moshe. Hearken is that in between. It's, it's somewhere between obeying and pure listening. Out of shortness of spirit, it's a great phrase. That phrase also, you could ask many questions what it means, but a shortness of spirit. And out of hard servitude. Uh, Larry, you want to read your translations? <laughs> sure. Um, Alter has, and Moses spoke thus to the Israelites, but they did not heed Moses out of shortness of breath and hard bondage. And Kaplan goes the other direction, and he says, and Moses related this to the Israelites, but because of their disappointment, and hard work, they would no longer listen to him. Kaplan. Oh, Kaplan. Uh, JPS also takes away the ooh. Remember I mentioned the ooh in between Kotzeruach and Avodah Kasha to suggest there were two different things, and JPS combines them. But when Moses told this to the Israelites, they would not listen to Moses, comma, their spirits crushed, Kotzeruach, by cruel bondage, Avodah Kasha. So obviously the Avodakasha is the reason for the Kotzeruah, but it's interesting that the Hebrew sets them apart as two separate entities. Okay. Um, before we Rashi, like just speak like modern American English speakers. What do you think Kotzeruach? What 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 image should we have in our mind when we when we are witness to the Israelites Kotzeruach that prevented them from shomeying? Is it depression? Is it they they couldn't produce sound? Right? Is it is it is it that? Um, uh, specific to the language, like sometimes when you know people who are depressed can't speak, they can't get the you know they don't have air in their in their bellies to to push out. What do we think it means? Land they and Larry, and then so Renee. I think if I'm not mistaken, katser is the verb that's used when you're um, cutting grain. Am I right? Katsira is harvest, correct? Right. So, correct. So their spirits have been cut down. Uh-huh. Nice. All right. So the reason it means that is because the root means short. So what is a harvest? It's taking a long stalk and making it short. But you're focusing on the on the not just a, a, the length, but some kind of like a cho a, a, a chopped down and diminished. Nice. Right. Renee, are you frozen? Oh. I think it's um, impatience, but also I wanted to ask you what you you goretic means because it in in um, Everett Fox he says that the goretic phrase probably means wretchedness. Ugaritic is one of the very early uh, Mesopotamian languages that is an, a precognate of Hebrew. So it's like what Ugaritic and uh, Akkadian were some of the languages that were spoken by other nations uh, way back when. Yeah. But I think it's short impatience because it also cuts out. You know, something is something that's short. Yeah. Any anyone else around the table or on the Zoom? What 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 you think of when you hear Kotzeruach, knowing what the words literally mean? What does it make you think of? 
Okay, so let's look at the Rashi. Uh, we'll probably get to um, just the, well, not the third one. It was just, just, by the way, peek ahead. You'll see what I mean about how long the third comment of Rashi is on this, on this, uh, on this verse. But let's see, we'll get with the first two, or at least the first one. Velo Shamu. Velo Shamu et Moshe. El Moshe. El Moshe. They did not listen to hearken to Moshe. Loki blue Tanchumin. So this is like uh, what Larry says. They, they didn't accept his uh, his uh, consolation. Correct, right? So first of all, he agrees with Uncle S and renders Shema as the root Kabbal. This is not having to do with their ears. The problem wasn't their ears. The problem was the the taking in of that which their ears had already heard into their heart. Why do we think Rashi used the word Tanchumin here? Or I'm not asking why that Hebrew vocabulary word, but why that why that image that they did not receive Moshe's consolation, got his his condolences. It's it's like his enthusiasm. It's like what Larry was saying. You know, they were they were down in the dumps, and Moshe was trying to say, no, God will bring you up, and they they didn't want to even go there. Refused to be cheered up, or or or, or not even refused. It, uh, impossible to be cheered up. It might just not be enough. It's, you know, oh, though there he is talking, but there's, he's going to have to show them something. Yeah. It's, you know, words aren't going to do it. They're mikot ruach. Yeah. Barry, Stevie? If we're going to use a human analogy, uh, when, when a child is hurting, um, the, a parent speaking logic is not going to help. Uh, a parent's arm and hand and comfort and soothing uh, will help. This is not happening here. Yeah, so it's almost, I wonder if what you're saying, Barry, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that by Rashi using the word tanchumim, Rashi saying Moshe was trying to comfort them, but there was no comfort. Right? It's almost like some of that, that imagery from, from the book of Echa, right? Ein menachem la, right? That, that Israel was so, Jerusalem was so downtrodden, so demoralized, Ein menachem la can mean, and there's some midrashim on this, that there was no one there to comfort her, or comfort was impossible. At some point, someone is beyond comfort or beneath comfort, even if there is someone to comfort you, right? You don't know when it has to give testimony, but I'm sure we can all think of moments in our lives, maybe even recently, where no one could possibly have comforted us even if they wanted to, right? Ein menachem lanu. So it's, it's just an interesting choice because the... In retrospect, we can look at the last three verses and saying, yeah, this should be some kind of a salve on the wounds of slavery. But I, we, until Rashi mentions this, I'm, we're not thinking the last few words as nichama, as comfort. It's, it's redemption coming. It's an interesting choice. Barry? I, I go one step further. And, uh, God, in, instead of God's right hand uh, coming in at this point, God's left hand would have been more appropriate. Uh-huh. Stevie? Yeah, just from the... Bnei Israel's perspective, the last thing that happened was that they were given responsibility for collecting straw, and it's Moses's fault, yeah. right? And then Moses turns to God after that, and then they have a conversation or several conversations. Um, but like, I think it's sort of an open question uh, would be, you know, are they is is there blame or resentment directed at Pharaoh or at Moshe or some of both. And that this verse 
could be an answer to that question. And I think you could read it both ways. I'm curious to see what Rashi does coming. You know, but... That's fascinating, CV. I really like that. Uh, Alan, you might be the last comment of the day. We can't hear you yet, though. We can see you. We can see your yad. Okay. It, it was more than just the work that they would have to do. There was a certain amount of fear that they were going to be killed. Is that go back, go back in 521, where they say that they're going to have, you know, swords to be able to kill them. But what, what's taking place? It was, um, I was just looking back. It was just, it's not just, it's not just the hard work, but the, the, the real fear of dying. And that would crush your spirit, take away your breath, that you would not be able to, to, to be able to breathe, in a sense, quite literally, perhaps, because you were going to die. I will be lingering in this week on, on a lot of the things that we said today, but Stevie's last comment is particularly um, fetching to, because... To, to read this verse from the Israelites' perspective, as we are being told what the Israelites were or not able to do, and then try to connect the not being able to, it doesn't say that they didn't believe God. It doesn't say that they didn't, they didn't trust, trust what God was promising, where the last three verses were about God's trust, but they could not heed Moshe from the very, maybe as a result of the very Kod Seruach and Avodah Kashad that they are now connecting to Moshe's having intervened and made things worse. Um, it's a lot here about how we Can try I, to make things better and we make things worse. Yeah. Um, and the word Tanhumin, I mean, I, I don't know about then, but I mean, it's kind of a tefillah word. You know, so it's it's sort of, you know, it's like, well, they didn't, they they weren't going in for the davening to console them at yeah. the time. It's like, you know, don't give us your, you know, don't give us a few psalms. Yeah. Uh, we, we can't do that. You know, halachically speaking, at a shiva minion, and this is something very hard to do because our instinct as human beings is to be good people and try to help. At a shivamin, you're supposed to end the end the tefillah by saying "May God come for you amongst the mourners of Zion in Jerusalem," and then say nothing. We don't do that. We, we say, "How you doing? Can I bring you some coffee?" But halacha says you're supposed to say that phrase and then sit and let the mourner speak or not speak. But you don't impose speech upon them. And I think the understanding in you know in two thousand year old psychology is they just might not be ready for any tanachumim. Doesn't mean that you don't want to offer it, but their kotzer ruach might be so severe that your attempt, even to be the nicest and most consoling that you can be, will fail. Right? I, as a rabbi, I have a hard time doing it. The shiva minion's over, and I give a hug and I say, "How are you?" Right? Because it's so weird not to. But there's a wisdom to the halacha saying, "Don't say anything," and you're not saying anything isn't being cruel. It feels like you're being cruel. How can I not have a comfort? But you're not saying anything might actually be giving them the space to say, no one can come for me right now to just sit with me. Um, have a great week, everyone. We'll do that long Rashi. We probably won't even finish it. It's a very long Rashi next week. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.